I'm seeing them. All right. Hi, everybody, and welcome to Lost Explorers. My name is J. David Osborne, and that is Chris Sacknessum. Chris, how are you doing this morning? It's still morning. Yeah, it is. Uh, David, I'm really well, thank you. I had a great weekend. My sister came down from Seattle, and we went out hiking and looking at, we were investigating the great bat uh, scene around Lake Mead. There's some beautiful, uh, beautiful bats that the region is very famous for. And just this morning, because I'm connected with the, the national park scene and all the hiking people and stuff, I got a great uh, notice, kind of a warning and a plea to not disturb Sonoran toads, which are also called the Colorado River toads, and to not lick them. Uh, for the neurotoxin effects, uh, which has become a little bit of a problem for people. And listeners may know that, uh, and I love this, this, this pairing, I think they should be a kind of a comedy team, but Mike Tyson and Hunter Biden have both uh, had experience uh, licking or smoking, actually, smoking dried toad venom uh, for their um, hallucinogenic properties, but in, in both their cases as uh, therapy agents for other drug addictions. So mm-hmm. don't mm-hmm. lick the toads, yeah, uh, you know? Sapito, sapito is what it's, 5-M-E-O-D-N-T. Yes. Uh, and I have a funny story about that. I was out with a friend of mine who has that magical ability to at any given time have on hand a kind of hunter thompson uh suitcase full of whatever and he said hey back at my place i've got some 5-meo-dmt you want to you want to try it and i thought well absolutely i've tried the original dmt and this is supposed to be uh, a bit more of an extended trip so similar in the, the quality of the trip but just longer so i said okay that sounds great well, little did I know, we were at a seedy bar in the seedy town that I grew up in, and I had been dosed. I'd been roofied. I'd left my beer sitting there, and somebody had roofied me. So I drove back to his house. We got out, and I <laughs> was petting his dog in his driveway when apparently I went limp ragdoll, and he had to carry me inside. So I woke up the next morning completely blacked out still could like was not creating new memories completely incoherent and apparently i fought my way out of the house back to my car and began driving to my mother's trailer which is about mm, a three mile drive from this guy's house and i woke up that evening with an ominous storm booming outside and my stepfather performing an exorcism over me Uh, and i thought I texted my friend, I said, that 5-MeO-DMT was some, that was a trip, man. It made me lose my mind. He said, oh no. He's like, you never got that far. You never got that far at all. And funny story, my wife's sister was at that same CD bar (laughs) a few months later, also got roofied and ended up in jail because she fought the police when they pulled her over for, you know, swerving this way and that. So this is so broken river. This is really like Oklahoma red dirt crime in the 21st century sort of stuff. 
I couldn't I couldn't smoke the toad because somebody had I guess just been going down the line of drinks and of course as a man you don't worry about your drink being drugged that's just not something that really occurs to us um, but this part this was an indiscriminate uh, drink spiker who, who got me and I'm sure several other people that night hopefully hopefully he didn't uh, actually get a a woman but uh good yeah. lord oh wow gotta gotta be careful out there down to the red dirt level is this in lawton oklahoma is this this is in lawton oklahoma yeah. this is a bar called chung's which i'm not sure if it exists anymore <laughs> that's a but. song right there i believe that lawton has the highest crime rate in in oklahoma Absolutely, it does. And when I was growing up, uh, I believe in 2003, it managed to hit number eight in the United States overall. Yeah, so it's back on the charts. The, I, th I, I think that that crossed my uh, my desk at some point. So, yeah, well, well done. That's where I grew up. That's where I grew up. That's why wherever I live now, people will say, oh, don't go over there. That's a rough neighborhood. And I think to myself, I think I'll be okay. I think I'll be just fine. Yeah, I'm from here. Well, you know, it's interesting. Like, you're from there, and I'm from Oakland. And I think both of those places mm -hmm. in there, you know, Oakland being slightly, you know, a more urban situation. But there's a kind of uh, notoriousness to them, and, and for good reason. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oakland definitely has a reputation. It's one of the... Lawton doesn't normally get lumped in with the big... Like, when you think of, uh, you know, Gary, Indiana, or... Uh, Newark, New Jersey. What are some other really? Chicago, the south side of Chicago, obviously. But Lawton, Oklahoma is no joke. Tulsa's not the safest place either. You'd be surprised. Well, it does get a much higher rating. Uh, Tulsa, I think, is the, the highest rating for safety in of all you know, you know, prominent uh, towns or cities in Oklahoma in the state. So... Uh, but Lawton is definitely on that, uh, you know. Oh, St. Louis is really bad. I used to visit St. Louis all the time, and even coming from Lawton, I would be like, Ugh, Detroit, you know, yeah, Detroit. West Baltimore. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's some, there's some real, we're, we're setting a stiff base in old America. Yes, we are. Mm -hmm. Yes, we mm -hmm. are. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well... Uh, let's see here. You've so got your words, words, yes, and you've done pretty you got, well with your... that of late. And I've been tracking that. So you've got five <sighs> to choose two, and they're pretty uh, divergent, exotic. We've got an Americanism in there for David I chose, and a couple of, um, yeah, no, it's going to be a stretch. It's going to be a stretch, but you're always good at that. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, I've got some yeah, got weird shit coming band, up. A, I do. Abandon an effort. Okay, so my 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 first band thing was just simply butt dial, um, because I did notice that the word dial. You know, think about that because we're not dialing anything anymore. So I, that did sort of get me, and I thought, okay, but that seems so commonplace that I thought. Well, I'm going to spruik for myself here and throw in me as a band and my first uh, CD, which is out, Petrola <laughs> in the Jungle, which I'm actually really proud of and I would appreciate any support for. The genre is sort of anthro-ambient, uh, chill exotica, 
or uh, another friend said Lost World, which I thought was really um, kind of a nice build on Lost Explorers, but it links into the fourth world idea that John Hassel and Brian Eno put forward. So kind of a, a weird hallucinogenic travelogue music. Um, and I have, I you know, a whole, there's a whole range of influences in, in addition to Hassel and Eno, Gavin Breyers, uh, Steve Reich, Daniel Schmidt, and Pauline Oliveros, who were all big figures in uh, Oakland, San Francisco, uh, and Mills College, mm -hmm. and doing things with <clears throat> gamelan music and North African stuff, trance music, breaking the spell of the 4-4 C major uh, Western music, you know, default settings. So uh, that is out. It's, uh, it's being distributed through uh, CD Baby. It's the first Lost Explorers uh, record. And there are YouTubes um, supporting some of those pieces. And my handle is Chris Sacknesson 9556 on YouTube. So that's my band pitch to back up butt dial because that just sounded kind of fun and, and easy and I thought well yeah that's good but um, I'll have one pitch in here occasionally for stuff I'm doing yeah we should do it more honestly we should pitch things let people know what we do I mean that's what we do on agitator because we don't make money from it so why not <laughs> we, it's our it's our ad space. Well, you get you get two hours every week for free, folks, for free. That's right, and go, we're we're go buy, go buy a record. We're putting out some really cool things that are get that that tie in with the theme of the podcast. So they're not entirely you know outlying sort of separate sort of things. And uh, a couple of listeners have told me you know look, don't be as shy about promoting yourselves. You know, this is a tough world and, and you're producing good stuff, so be proud of it. So, so there we are. Um, and mm -hmm. to uh, make up for the sin of self-promotion with a pitch for uh, Victrola in the Jungle, I've got some aphorism excitement. Not that I don't always, I'd like to think I do, but I've got, I've got three, in the, three in the chamber um, the first one I thought sounds so simple and you could say all the other senses are involved in this but it hit me that it, that it has so, it says something important about the nature of uh, sensory perception and it is simply the future has no smell future has no smell think about that for my course you could say well it doesn't have there's no auditory I don't think that's true I think we have a lot of uh, ideas about what what the future might sound like we have lots of uh, people trying to visualize the future uh, but smell is such a visceral uh, deep physical sense it may put the notion of what we mean by the future into a different perspective so that's number one. And related to this, you can see there's a kind of a theme. Grief can't be theoretical. Love can. Let that really rock around your brain. And then I'm building up to my, my real official aphorism, which is kind of fun to say, if nothing else. A little bit long, but it's, it's good.
All right, you ready? Ready. All the arts rebel against language. Semicolon. Writers are merely addicts or like those needy and resentful owners of bars with antlers on the pine-paneled walls in alpine towns who are dependent on snow bunny tourists buying hot buttered rums on weekends and not just long beers for the locals on long afternoons. <laughs> that's good. Yeah, that's good. That's almost a poem. Yeah, well, yeah, you know, something's wrong with my brain, you know, and I think I, I am going to get an MRI, uh, but in the meantime, I'm just going to keep a good journal going. And so that's yeah. that's what comes out. But I think that's an interesting point that all the arts rebel against language capital L and I think maybe especially writers mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah especially writers because language is an attempt to put things in concrete and it's easier to rebel against language when you're not using the tools of language to do so but ultimately we are trying to get to that poetic space that you perform and demonstrate in the aphorism itself of you know this concrete communication of language with a capital l so I, yeah i think that that's it's a great performance of what the aphorism is saying and that's our theme, is to not just sort of say, but to, uh, and not just show, but to, to perform, to give a kind of expression that, that maybe has some presence that will, you know, genuinely stir up some thinking. So, there we go. There we go. And I'm excited about our um, pursuit of piracy as our current... Uh, thematic focus and we're going to get into the discussion about William Dampier our, uh, a hero of ours and rightly so um, but he ties into your imaginative challenge okay. and um, okay. this is also it, this also will perform a tool uh, it's a simple tool to say it is not a simple tool to put into uh, into performance in the world, but uh, are you ready for your challenge of the week? I'm ready for my challenge of the week. Okay, so this does tie into piracy, and I think we hit on something really interesting with our notion that piracy is another way of thinking of the rock and roll aesthetic, that, that pirates are... Uh, you know, before Rebel Without a Cause, before the Wild Ones, before the counterculture, on and on and on. Pirates were the original anti-heroes. And um, I ran that by a, a highbrow literary friend of mine. And uh, his view was, well, you know, think about, that's, that's actually really interesting. Because if you cross-reference against knights, you know, K-N-I-G-H-T-S, who are uh, the predecessors of some of the, the gunslinger, uh, motifs of, of the Wild West 
through the anti-hero movement of today even. Um, pirates are much, you know, much more problematic and much more interesting. Knights have a, a real religious uh, thing you, you kind of can't get away from, the Holy Grail, you know, uh, and a couple of them are seen as, you know, very much Christian allegorical figures, and I don't really think you could do that with any uh, pirate. The closest we get to any non-pirate of piratical import is the Robin Hood figure, you know, really. Mm -hmm. um, so pirates mm -hmm. really are, are central to that that questioning of authority um, from a heroic point of view. Um, and we talked about the notion of pirate utopias. I mean, that really is a phrase. There's a history of pirate utopias. It's not just the Captain Mission or Captain Missum figure. Uh, it really, the moment you talk about pirates, you get into the idea of organizing communities. So, I started thinking, well, if we can have a pirate utopia, uh, one question for you is, can we have a gangster utopia? And I think that's a very, um, I, I, that's a provocative question. I, I'm, I'm not sure. You, if you Google on pirate utopias, you get a wonderful reading list uh, of exciting adventures to go on. And gangster utopias, eh, not so much. But your imaginative challenge is to consider a pirate or gangster utopia that, of course, as we know so often, descends into a dystopian scenario. And it's your choice of mm -hmm. how that forms. You could, for instance, go down a Jonestown religious cult out of control that becomes a doomsday society. It could be uh, Lord of the Flies. You know, there are any number of ways to phrase the dystopian uh, aspect. So your first level of challenge is to, you know, give us a sense of this community, where they are, and how the thing fell apart. But the, the kicker here, and this is uh, the tool is to reverse engineer it. You're going to tell the story backwards. You're going to move us back in time uh, in a total flashback, a sustained flashback that may help us see where the breakdown was. Uh, mm. This is a really, okay. really important tool for people to think about. And you can, in very basic visual terms, take a, a, your, your classic four-panel comic or cartoon, cut those up, and start shuffling those around. But we really only understand something if we can play it backwards. And we've got to start using these tools, understanding backward speech, looking at uh, listening to music that way, being able to... Uh, I mean, met several fav famous composers would, would write their sheet music down, their compositions, and then look at them in a mirror. So look at these other ways, these tools, these other reflective ways of breaking things down. But you're going to take us to a pirate or gangster utopia that has descended into some terminal form of mayhem, uh, a dystopian crisis in that community. And then you're going to play it back to that idealistic beginning 
and I think it's very appropriate on election, midterm election day in America, because so many people are wondering, well, why don't good intentions turn out and deliver good results? Why can they not right, get with right. that? And one of our key political parties, and we only have two in America, just seems to not be able to understand that principle, <laughs> you know? Uh, mm -hmm, that good intentions mm -hmm, do mm -hmm. not good results uh, guarantee. So, any questions about that? No, I like it. Very cool. Stoked. That's, uh, and it'll be appropriate for this episode because, as you said, we'll be talking about a very special pirate. A very, a very neat pirate. Yeah. Taking just a few notes here. Breakdown of the gangster utopia it's a cool title for a book actually yeah well especially if you you know you run a company called broken river books and you live in oklahoma and you're from the most you know dubious yeah. <laughs> part dangerous yeah. cd yeah mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know i go there to visit uh, both rios and rios's parents and my mother live still in that town so we go visit and my mom, who teaches at the worst uh, sort of inner city school there, she's got some crazy stories about what the lockdowns have, have done to her already struggling students. Um, but I asked my mom, like, why do you like living here so much? And she said, well, I go from work to home to out to eat. Sometimes I go to Kohl's or I go to JCPenney. She's like, I just don't, I don't see what, uh, what you saw. And I said, oh, right, 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 right. Because you aren't, uh, you know, trying to do drugs and get laid. You, you probably wouldn't see the things that I saw. So I just think that that's funny how you can have a completely, to her, the town is fine. There's nothing wrong with it. She's, a, she's a, in a terrible neighborhood, but she's a teacher. And there's still that, that little bit of, you know, don't touch the teacher, right? Leave her, leave her be, which is good. That is good. I, but I think probably she also has the teacherly attitude of, of looking on the sunny side, uh, you know, uh, an inveterate optimist, uh, because that's what you have to be to be a teacher. So I think there's a lot of personal character that uh, is praiseworthy there, because I think if she were of a mind uh, to see some of the shadowy aspects of it, I, th I think they'd be pretty apparent, <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. All right. So, I've got my imaginative challenge, which images are beginning to form in my head. This is always fun. Today, we are going to be talking about William Dampier, who was one of Darwin's heroes. Absolutely, and, and Wallace, absolutely, both of them. And Wallace, yeah. Uh, he was the first person to captain a vessel on a voyage, uh, an official voyage, with the express intent of collecting flora and fauna from far-off lands. I didn't realize it took until the 17th century to do that. Um, I had figured that this kind of exploration went much further back than that. But before I get too into that, he also began his life as a pirate. 
and not the not the quote unquote good kind of pirate because there are two two uh, breeds of pirate back in the day. There were privateers, yes, and there were and there were buccaneers, yes, and privateers were contracted by the royal government to harass other countries. <laughs> they were essentially mercenaries. They were the blacks, black rocks of their day. And the buccaneers were just the wild boys. They were the the wild boys. And, and so, the day, as you say, in terms of the the royal, uh, you know, imprimatur and the, the, the employer here, that could change very quickly. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So Dampier, uh, didn't wasn't born into poverty but his parents uh his his father passed away when he was seven his mother when he was 14 and he began uh his his life as a logger but due to some bad weather lost all of his logging tools and you know back in the day there's no insurance for this kind of thing you have to bring your own tools he didn't have the money to replace his tools so he fell in with a group of pirates and uh in his books he doesn't specifically list any at least in this period of his life he doesn't list any real dirt that he did but these were some these were some bad guys right these were the types of buccaneers that were you know not just harassing other ships but you know raiding coastlines and stealing torturing raping that kind of thing. So he, we start off very firmly in the anti-hero, if not just full-on bad guy category for Dampier. We do well, you know, the whole thing, and I think our our overarching and underlying theme here is an extension of our notion that historical revisionism, as in presentism, is what we're calling it today. I think is so ludicrously myopic and out of touch with reality because we just can't relate to some of these figures. I mean, by the time he was, you know, in his early 20s, he'd been on a merchant voyage to Newfoundland. I mean, Newfoundland, the Grand Banks. I mean, serious, serious stuff. He'd been to Java. He'd been to, as a young, young man. And then there's like plantation management in Jamaica, logging in Mexico. And pretty soon, I mean, he'd been involved in raids across uh, the, the Darien Gap, the Isthmus of, of, of Darien in Panama, which has got to be the most, one of the most dangerous places in the world. You actually, People go missing there all the time, even today. It's just bad, bad news. The weather's bad. Mm -hmm. The insect, reptile situation's bad. The people have always been dangerous. It's everything is dangerous. Uh, he mm -hmm. sailed to Virginia when he was in his early 20s with another, with John Cook, who's another one of these privateer slash buccaneers. I mean, these people were, were cutthroats, really. So what does a young uh, guy who's really quite intelligent make of, of surviving on board, you know, these ships? But I wanted just to say one thing about, you know, the idea of uh, 
Danford being the really the starting point for exploration in the sense of collecting flora and fauna and really building scientific knowledge in a very formal uh, sense, you know, really doing lots of drawings, recording uh, impressions, collecting specimens, a lot of onboard work and a lot of care and maintenance of keeping this stuff together, like, like treasure. He's the link, he falls midway between Drake of the Elizabethan era and Cook when, when things really get cranky in the 19th century. But for anyone who has any questions about how much or how little we understand the past, have a look at the Golden Hind, which is on display in London, Drake's ship. And Drake was, was a really good role model. He was an English uh, explorer definitely a privateer, uh, seriously into uh, hijacking Spanish ships and as much treasure as he could get. The Golden Hind is tiny. How in God's name did crews of men go around the world? Cape Horn and the Cape of Good Hope. You've got to be kidding. Even today, mm -hmm. those things are just hair-raising. Yeah, yeah. Well, he had uh, an ex... He was the authority on wind, essentially. That's one of the interesting facts that I gleaned from my research, is that he, uh, he was around the time of both uh, Sir Isaac Newton and also uh, Halley. Halley? Uh -huh. The, the, the comet, the comet yeah. fella. Um, and his particular, uh, he had a book about his travels, but he also had a book about sailing, and it became the authority on how to understand uh, currents and wind and where it all came from and how to use it. So I have to assume that that played a role just in the pure survival of these tiny rickety boats full of literal pirates, full of, you know, cutthroat buccaneers. He's just, you know, no matter who you're around, if you have a, if you have a skill, they'll, they'll, they won't feed you to sharks, I guess. Well, and, you know, there's so many, uh, think, uh, you know, we talk about Gregory Bateson having a wonderfully diverse academic career in modern times and that we can't even imagine someone doing that today because we're all so hyper specialized and you know you have to you know have a degree in everything that you write about and stuff at different points in his life Dampier was seriously called by the leading figures of his day he was described as a bloodthirsty pirate an unrepentant heretic and a cannibal and also one of the foremost explorers and f really a father figure for all of natural history. I mean, what, what a career, what a guy. <laughs> mm -hmm. And he, he rescued yeah, yeah. and Alexander Selkirk, the real Robinson Crusoe. I mean, I think that's just absolutely insane. Just that alone. The rescue mission of Selkirk, you know, the 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 real mm -hmm. 
prototype for the Robinson Crusoe story of Daniel Defoe. Anywhere that anything was happening in the 63 years that Dampier lived, he was there. I mean, yeah. that's just astounding. Um, well, I love this, and I love that you're you, like totally into I think there are a couple of um, avenues to explore, to get a handle on this heroic figure, because the other thing that is so interesting and ties into a big, big thematic interest of ours is the notion of mythology versus history. And remember, we said that Joseph Campbell argued that history is kind of misunderstood mythology, and it's a degraded form of that, and that in a, in a way, our progression through to modern uh, thinking and to today's obsessions with presentism and uh, pizza and building our own burgers, uh, it's, it's all about this degenerative uh, misunderstanding of the link between mythology and history. Primarily, I think, because we just don't have any mythically, uh, enough mythically interesting people like Dampier. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. I love, you mentioned earlier his connection, and, and we're not saying he invented these or coined these words, but he introduced some important uh, new terminology to England and to Europe regarding cuisine and uh, many cultural things that he, he came upon and discovered. He was a hugely observant um, sort of person. And, you know, he introduced to the European palate, um, you know, the taste of flamingo and manatee, which I think is cool. But I'm looking at one of his maps, you know, and map making. I mean, think about that. That is just so, so cool and so fundamental to our understanding of being on a planet. You know, everyone's talking about the fate of the planet now. Well, how did we even know that without geniuses like this in the past? You know, mm -hmm, can't trample mm -hmm, on the history. Mm -hmm. But I'm, I love how he spells mosquito as in the Mosquito Coast. M-I-S-K-I-T. And that's how uh, Lewis and Clark spelled mosquitoes often. Um, oh, wow. So this really eccentric spelling thing. And, you know... I mean, what uh, great Ivy League or, uh, you know, Oxford or Cambridge school did Dampier go to? He didn't. Completely self-taught, yeah, you know, really. Self-taught, self self-interested. Self he, he is credited with the first appearance of the term ganja, describing marijuana. I love this quote of his. It says, some it keeps sleepy, some merry, some putting them into a laughing fit, and others... It makes mad. Which is just really funny. You think about the first encounter with potheads. Yeah. He uh some some words, some other words, banana, posse, smugglers, tortilla, avocado, cashews, and chopsticks. In addition to the first uh, written English account of a recipe for guacamole. There's a lot of fun food related stuff with Dampier. One of my favorite anecdotes because, you know, as they're going along the it's really hit or miss with piracy, uh, what you're going to get. But there's one uh, ship that they seized where their, their bounty was eight tons of marmalade, which I just I find hilarious. That's fantastic, just, the, you know. And 
What an interesting thing up against Peruvian silver, you know, stolen from the Spaniards, mm-hmm. you know. It's an mm-hmm. interesting notion of what the, the, the mindset regarding treasure and things that were precious then, you know. Think about that. God, mm-hmm. that's lovely. Marmalade. Yeah, pirates and marmalade. Right, how, about this? how about this one? He witnessed the mass circumcision of a group of 12-year-olds in the Philippines. See, that's just, you know. <laughs> Jesus. You know, like, can you imagine just the, the, the horrors, right? And, you know, there's, there's a, in Polynesia, he uh, was very interested in the tattooing there. Uh, one of the other anecdotes, I want to, I can't remember if this guy's name was Polynesian Pete or something to that effect, but he was an indigenous person from Polynesia who was completely tattooed. <laughs> brought back to England as a slave, and when he died, they preserved his skin at the University of Oxford. I'm pretty sure they still have that skin suit. Uh, different times, right? Just <laughs> different times. Like, We've got to keep this skin, like taxidermy this skin. Um, but yeah, no. so his spirit of exploration and uh, his interest in uh, the, the local cultures, all except for, I should say, the aboriginal cultures of Australia, which he did not care for at all. Yeah, he had some very uh, negative things. And it's interesting about that because uh, that is a, a something that is really put aside today and no one knows how to deal with it. Um, but it's worth noting that, that he had quite a bit of exposure across uh, really the whole um, western and, and northern top part all the way around. So, the, and that is, um, to this day, still the, the, the stronghold of indigenous Australia. There, there, they, there is obviously a red center desert component. And, and there was spreading to Tasmania and to New South Wales and Victoria. But by and large, it's, that, it's the Northern Territory that you think of first. So it wasn't as if he had just a little exposure. He had, he had a lot. And... Um, we may not like what he said, but on the other hand, uh, we didn't circ- we haven't circumnavigated the globe three times, you know, and he did. Right, right, right. And that, again, is, I just don't, I don't think that any of these things should be shied away from. I think that it's all part of a very important story, that you could have this person who, you know, he, he basically, in order to have this kind of spirit at this time in order to survive the way that he did you know, you're not going to be a perfect uh, 2020 liberal but I don't think we could really hold that against him because nobody really was I mean at the time people were just people it was rougher than it is now <laughs> to be alive well you're um, not going to hold together pirate crews or command a formal ship in the Royal British Navy and maintain order 12,000 miles from the Thames River by being a nice guy or some sort of, you know, a liberal-minded person who wants a consensus view of things. No, you know. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting. One um, later, you know, his... I think the measure, I think we'd all agree that uh, the measure of someone's uh, 
cultural shadow has a lot to do with who they influenced. And his, you know, the people who openly said we wouldn't have done what we did without him. Uh, Cook, Joseph Banks, Nelson, Darwin, Wallace, von Humboldt, and later um, someone who also was had a pretty dubious uh, naval reputation for the United States, Charles Wilkes. And if anyone, I highly, I have a, it's a beautiful. He was an amazingly good writer many years later. Uh, so we're talking the 1840s, the, the Melvillian mid-19th century. Uh, but the United States exploring expedition with Wilkes in charge produced an astonishing amount of data collection across any aspect of marine biology, any aspect of terrestrial biology they encountered, and a lot of tremendous cultural anthropology. Uh, nevertheless, Wilkes was uh, supposedly the model for uh, Melville's Captain Ahab and was condemned as uh, a cruel uh, commanding officer and was called to account by all the authorities of the day. And his response at one point for uh, he was charged with whipping uh, one of his crew, and he asked, you know, the senior admiralty and uh, the cabinet of the time. He said, "Well, sirs, what would you have done in my place, so far from home, with authority hanging on such slender threads?" You know, it's mm. it's all mm -hmm. the second guessing by paper-pushing people. Uh, remember we said that one of Defoe's interesting visions for the future was how administration and bureaucracy was already creeping into the mix. We think we've got, you know, politics and red tape. We don't, you know, it started a long time ago. And yet there were these right. people who were out there really doing stuff, you know? Right, And yeah. And they were having to justify themselves to these very arrogant, uh, completely, you know, bathtub admiral, armchair, quarterback type politico figures in, in Washington and London or wherever. It just... And that is part, I think, of, of what the piratical mindset rebellion is defined as it's a rebellion against that framework of admin red tape and it's not an open thing of like well you know the ends justify the means and we're just going to be cruel and cannibal <laughs> I think some of the people were involved in that but I mean who are you going to recruit in the 17th century to sail around Cape Horn it's not going to be nice right. people, right. you know? No, no, no. It isn't going to be nice people. And it's worth noting that Dampier did, as we've mentioned, try to make an honest go of it, and go straight, if you will. And it didn't work out well for him at all. So he became something of a celebrity because of his book, which, ironically, he didn't make very much money off of due to piracy, literary piracy. There wasn't copyright at this time, so people were just printing it however they 
they so chose, but he did become a bit of a celebrity and was hired to go on this expedition on the Roebuck. Uh, He was immediately hated by his second-in-command, a guy named Fisher, who uh, was just doing little... If this was a movie, Fisher would be, you know, this kind of pompous guy who's who's doing that thing where he puts his finger right up to your nose and says I'm not touching you I'm not touching you so he did little things here and there to undermine uh, Dampier's command which boiled all the way to a head when he let the crew uh, whenever you pass the equator you get to have a keg of beer as a way to unwind so they tapped the keg, asked if they could open a second, and Fisher went ahead and said sure without confirming it with Dampier. And for whatever reason, again, you have to imagine that this has been building up and building up and building up for weeks and weeks and weeks. Uh, Dampier just beat the shit out of him with his cane. Uh, threw him in the, in the hold, didn't give him bathroom breaks, let him stew in his own filth, dropped him off in Brazil. <laughs> and by the time this guy got back to England to stand his trial, he was on the propaganda campaign to demonize Dampier, which meant several historians think some of the the less uh, nice things that people have said about him could have potentially come from this this guy spreading these uh, rumors and stories about him. Cancellation, early Twitter. He was, you know? yeah, yeah, he was, yeah, he went on a cancel cancel tour basically. So. You know, Dampier's uh, ship, the Roebuck, it, it sank. The Navy did not give him uh, their best ship. Him and his crew were marooned for five weeks. And uh, unfortunately, every single sample that he had collected on his journey was lost. And when he got back, he was stripped of his command. And he thought to himself, well, I guess it's back to piracy for me. So he, he was out of the life, and then he went right back in. As the as the movie line goes, um, just fascinating stuff, man. Do you really you know? It's interesting. One of you know, we said that he influenced uh, Wallace, who was such a beautiful uh, collector of specimens and observers of nature. And uh, the Dampier Strait, one of many uh, parts of, of the Earth that are named after Dampier. Uh, he has a small sort of. A planetoid named after him too in space uh, but the Dampier Strait is one of the most amazing parts of the world and uh, it's uh, between Indonesia and New Guinea Island and some phenomenal diving an enormously rich biodiversity uh, thing and that uh, it was his inspiration that got Wallace focused there Wallace's big um, focal collection study points in the world were the Amazon and uh, the Indonesian and Malaysian archipelagos. And Russell, uh, at one point, had uh, a a crisis on board ship uh, and a fire broke out and he had to abandon and and he lost uh, years of of collected specimens and notes, Mm -hmm, some mm -hmm. of the great stuff that he just you know, really, really worked hard for. And he said the only way that he could survive that emotionally uh, was recalling uh, what Dampier 
had faced in terms of setbacks. <coughs> and don't you think that's mm-hmm. something that, that we need to think about again today, all of us, but I think, I think it's something that we need to think about particularly as, as artists, writers, uh, intellects, you know, we've all had setbacks. I think we could, we, you and I have often said the last 10 years culturally feels like a big setback. But maybe mm-hmm. we could really dig deep and, and draw some pirate inspiration from someone like Dampier who, who just refused <laughs> to lose his curiosity, to lose his courage. And he kept going, you know, he really did. Yeah, doesn't it? It does feel like the past ten years have just been completely knocked off course. That's a really good analogy uh, that we can draw from our own lives because you know I was on sort of a nice trajectory there. The books were gaining a nice bit of steam, and then culture just sort of shifted, and people couldn't have been less interested in the things that I was working on. Um, and it does feel like it might be coming back. But yeah, I mean, what do you do, really? I mean, do you despair and get bitter? Or do you just keep making cool things so that when the weather clears, when the, you know, the astrological weather is more in your favor, you have a library, you have a, a bunch of stuff that you have created waiting for people. So, yeah, it's the, these big forces, these winds of change. You know, Dampier was a celebrity, and everybody knew that he was a pirate. That's why he was a celebrity. But they got a little bit of a thrill out of it. And then culturally, that wasn't as in vogue with the elite anymore. So he was cast to the side. And, uh, well, unfortunately for him, I mean, he did, he did die. Uh, he developed an alcohol problem and... Uh, passed away penniless so, so it doesn't always end up great but I do like looking at the vast you know scope of a person's life and and seeing the ups and downs that they go through hey bubs it's like a, you know a great sort of blues musician it's just this this amazing up down thing and I mean it's fascinating to read and then I think you know people who are uh, empathetic, you know, step back a moment and go, wow, I don't know if I could have handled that. That's, that's like too much vicissitude. You know, longitude, latitude, and vicissitude. Uh, right. Just so many life changes that, that he adjusted to. Um, and if we, I mean, but 60, you know, living into your 60s then, and with the kind of adventurous life that he did I mean it's it's pretty amazing, and I think the overall takeout is is really pretty heroically inspiring for us. That uh, here was someone who, first of all, I think had an insatiable curiosity uh, for the world, for life, for people, for animals, for weather, for understanding the universe as as far mm-hmm. as he could mm-hmm. access it. And no one pushed the limits of access more fully. I mean, uh, three circumnavigations, he was into, you know, weird substances and would, you know, he was a pothead pirate. He was, a, he was checking out mm-hmm. tattoo ceremonies and circums. You know, he was just interested in everything. And I think that might be the story for us to remember 
which ties in with our notion of, of crystal radio, uh, that do-it-yourself sense of exploring and experimenting and asking questions and lifelong learning. And then a kind of pirate radio, you know, interesting pirate radio mm -hmm. community of, of what we're trying to do with the podcast and trying to nurture that, that sense of, of possibility, the insane possibility that all of the forces of, of conventional society, I think, have always been in opposition to, you know, whether it's bureaucrats mm -hmm. and, and, and government officials, kings and queens, uh, you know, the, 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 the people who are the gatekeepers, the, the editors and publishers often, uh, the people who are awarding, you know, prizes and uh, fellowships and all, you know, everybody who's a gatekeeper is kind of by definition not an explorer. That's an interesting, yeah, the gatekeeper versus the explorer. Could you, just as a fun imaginative exercise could you tell us what a 2022 I almost forgot what year it was that's where my head's at 2022 version of William Dampier what does that look like with modern technology and Wikipedia and uh, Google Maps and things of that nature what, what's an, what would an analog a completely fictional character what would that look like do you think oh I think that's a fascinating question I think that that would that uh, I'll come at that um, I really appreciate that that that's you know something uh, that I do think about but this gives me a particular focus I think there are a couple of different answers if, if we look at kind of the the natural history uh, anthropology uh, physical exploration of the world sense, uh, I think we could look at a kind of uh, super Gregory Bates and Terence McKenna, John Lilly type of young figure who is embarking into some of the really dangerous, uh, fragile environments of the world today, Borneo, uh, Oceania, particularly New Guinea, um, what remains of the Amazon or the Congo, and going there with uh, the technology of today, but stepping beyond the obsession with materialist science and DNA collection and specializing as the 19th century uh, movement was to a more living, dynamic sense of, of habitat that includes humans, that where humans are not outside looking in, but they'd be very much field uh, scientists who are getting involved. They'd have a kind of, they'd be gonzo uh, scientists, and they'd be saying, yeah, well, I am going to disrupt the field, and that's the observer effect, but, you know, what do you do? I'm going to be there, and uh, I'm going to be, I'm going to be part of it. And yes, I am changing the thing, but I'm not going to deal with all that post-colonial nonsense of, well, you know, what gives you the right to study these things? You know, no, I'm I'm going to go out and have adventures, and, but I am going to recoup some knowledge and broader perspective for the world that, 
I, I feel a kind of pirate mission sense to do. And that would be really cool. And I think there are some people doing that. And I'd like to think that although there's an enormous uh, absurd pressure on young women today to get into high tech, because that's where the dollars are, um, there are some young women that have crossed my path um, who they don't want to be computer heads. They, they hate that. They don't like any of that. And they don't like the men involved in that. And they don't like the sociology of it. They want to be out collecting butterflies uh, in the East Kalamantan jungle while it still exists. Uh, and they're going to uh, know how to repair uh, marine diesel equipment. And they're going to uh, be capable with weapons. And they're going to be improvising uh, food uh, solutions in field, in country. Um, and they're going to be real adventurers, you know? And I think so. The first thing is bringing uh, the humanism of uh, people like Terrence McKenna, who really is still with us. He, he hasn't been dead that long. Uh, with some modern technological assistance, but really trying to learn from the vast, mysterious text of planet Earth with that magical alchemical spirit rather than the Richard Dawkins uh, dead 19th century mechanistic approach. Mm. So it's it's a, a mindset. So somebody who is, let's say, uh, living in Oklahoma, the the way for someone like me to approach this kind of thing is to perhaps go, just go out and explore my local parks and get into the history, perhaps more of where I live. I don't even know if you remember this, but way back around episode three or so, we talked about how there were allegedly giants that lived uh, in Norman, right around right. where I was living. And I was contacted by a friend who hipped me to this discord of people who are obsessed with proving and finding evidence that giants did, in fact, live around that area. So maybe I should go hit them up see see if we can go giant hunting together well exactly imagine that you uh had some space where you live and you you probably don't have the physical dimensional space for it so you need to create this uh within your uh computer uh resources or better still within your own mind as as a kind of gallery of maps and uh dimensional uh, schematics that you can kind of try to get make consistent in your mind which takes some discipline but to build up sort of a, a profile of, of I mean Oklahoma is so interesting from geology and meteorology we think of those two things I think very quickly certainly you know with the tornadoes we think also of the tremendously rich Native American history and then that gets us thinking back to the ancient megafauna. Uh, there's, it's a part of the country that doesn't have huge Manhattans and Los Angeles, so there's presumably uh, some star and astronomy sort of thing. So you, you start building these layers of possibility. 
And then you're naturally alert to people, the sociology and anthropology. And I think having a kind of travel field kit wherever you go, you've got your field recorder, and to be recording sound, to be recording uh, vision, uh, photographically, you're good at drawing. And this extended journal mind that you've got rolling, uh, and you've got the incentive of uh, a young son, and so you've got this kind of guardianship role of, of introducing him to the curiosity fever. You know, what's wrong? Fevers are, mm-hmm. are everyone goes, do you, do you have any fever? And it's like, well, wait a minute. That's often a good thing. Really, a really high fever was one of the best things that ever happened to me. You know, it's a drug you can call your own, believe me, because it, it, it profiles your psyche, your brain in different ways. Uh, but love is a fever. There are a lot of good fevers. And curiosity is a fever that young people desperately need, you know. And you can... Right. Instead of this, like, gate, the gatekeeping that you mentioned I think was a really important point because the flip side of curiosity being gatekeeping means that there are people who want to be gatekept and I think that wanting to sit and just be entertained and maintain the pusillanimous attitude that so many people have these days like they they love being pusillanimous they they, they think do. it's they think it's great they do you know what I mean it's 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 a point of pride uh, that's well said but what if you what if you just threw all that away and decided to stop <laughs> to stop wanting to be gatekept so hard? And, you know, the other thing that I think that, that you and I have done in, across our lives and we support in other friends and colleagues in our, our cohort, you got to know, maybe we resist being pirates in any sort of formal criminal sort of sense, but it's not a bad thing to know some people. Who are pirate? Who are legitimate pirates? You know, and I'm very grateful for uh, the time I spent with my stepbrother, who did, you know, he did veer into some really bad shit. There's no doubt about it. And I don't want to glorify that, but there was a moment where, you know, we passed by something like this is just an example uh, down in Emeryville, which is where you'd go to dump the bodies. Now it's been completely reclaimed and it's where you go get $30 pasta and these high tech and biotech people have, you know, colonized the hell out of the thing. But it used to be this wonderful, just sort of jungle of crumbling old industrial weird stuff and anything that was going on there was strange, but there was this giant palm olive, uh, factory plant and these big sort of detergent soap bubbles would blow out of there like weird ghost shapes and there was Mm -hmm, a mm -hmm. a really hardcore Doberman you know like the dog version of a demented Navy SEAL or Army Ranger and that was his gig was protecting it and my stepbrother's attitude was one night he said you know what if we could get around the dog? What if we could deal with the dog? Wouldn't it be cool to go explore? And I thought, God, you know, my mother would have about three or four million fits, and there's nothing that, but bad things that could possibly happen in some people's minds. But his point of view was, look, this is a big part of, of our neighborhood. 
Plus, we're here right now, and there's a moon out, and there are these weird detergent bubbles, giant bubbles changing shape across this parking lot, and this dog that looks like pure war confronting us across a chain-link fence. He said, what if we just rose to that challenge and went exploring, you know? And that, mm -hmm. that just, I'm so glad I had some of those experiences in life. Yeah, yeah, that's the way to. I like that you said there's nothing good that could possibly come from this if you if you're thinking about it. <laughs> so you have to just turn that off. You have to think, okay. It's like having a flirtatious relationship with life itself, right? Like I'm just gonna poke and prod and see how far I can get with it, and a little bit of gambling spirit in there too. There's a link between piracy and gambling. Certainly, there Being is. Able to, well, I, to take I think risks. You know, I'll throw this. You've just triggered this. Let me just throw this out as a possible uh, algorithmic vector. Uh, what if piracy is to gambling uh, as war is to sport? Mm-hmm. There you go. I like that a lot. I like that a lot. I think that. I think that piracy in like okay, let's put put it in you know modern terms. Like what's a what's a piracy thing that everybody knows about and deals with? Uh, you know, let's, let's say movie piracy on a website. When you go to one of these websites to download a movie, sure you can, you know, back when I was a kid and I was trying to find rare B sides for System of a Down albums that had never been released, and I would go to these websites. You're taking a gamble. Right, you're taking a gamble that that the feds won't see what you're doing and uh, send a letter to your parents informing them that your internet connection has been shut off. Right, there's always just a bit of of a risk of the, you know this could go very wrong. In fact, the guy whose name I can't recall, I can't recall his Christian name, but the kid who invented the Silk Road, who's in jail for the rest of his life, it's a total crime because you know he created a platform. And sure, he might have hired a hitman here or there, but going to jail for life for that just seems extra. But he went by the handle of the Dread Pirate Roberts, right? right? So, and, and that's a big, big, big risk, you know? So I do, I do like that. I, I've been fascinated by the idea of, you know, coin flips and deciding what to do based solely on chance, getting one of those big... You know, Dungeons and Dragons dice. Have you seen those things? It's like a 40, 40 sided dice and inventing little games to decide what to do with your day based off of that. That seems like a start to a, a pirate lifestyle. Yeah, well, breaking up the, the C major 4 4 default setting sort of thing. Uh, it's interesting what you, you know, and I, I'm doing uh, some commercial writing about cybersecurity at the moment. And I, I'm, I'm struggling with the issue of whether or not these hackers can, I mean, they're certainly involved in intellectual property piracy and, and forms of terrorism. Somehow it's harder for me to frame them in the William Dampier pirate sort of mode. Uh, technology and computerization, the whole digital sort of thing I, I, I don't see these people as having any uh, physical courage 
And I think that that, to me, is kind of a dividing line. Uh, but here's the thing, because you and I talked about courage uh, last episode, and I, you know, honestly, I don't think we're having very many conversations about courage today, really. But isn't the, one of the problems that if you look at people who have the kind of physical courage that I'm talking about just in the last few moments, uh, you either, if you're just sort of your normal uh, couch surfing sort of person, you either think of them as, as being natively somewhat deranged, there's something, you know, there's a screw loose, they're, they're missing the fear component. Uh, that's pretty much, I think, the default setting. I, I, I don't know how many of the couch surfing people go, no, the, the, the people with courage who, or who demonstrate and perform courage in the world uh, just simply override their fear. You know, they, they have right. fear. They're not, they're not mm -hmm. pathologically, uh, you know, missing the fear gene. Uh, not at all. Yeah. That's not how it works. No, they're just, uh, they just have, that's what courage is. And I think that for people who don't like to apply genetics and destiny to too much when it comes to human beings anymore, uh, they seem oddly convinced of this idea that courage is something that is just baked into some, to some people, right? Um, this was a big thing for me when I was overcoming OCD. Yo, you don't like this bubble? Here, I'll turn it. Mommy. Yeah, mommy's at work. The kid, uh, of course, slept for three hours yesterday when it was a short work day, but on a 10-hour day, he decided to only sleep for an hour. He's, you know, he's a pirate. That's the way it goes. He's a pirate. He's absolutely a pirate. I'm trying to find something here on YouTube that isn't completely disturbing and strange. There's so many strange, I, I think auto-generated. Here, let's do one to a hundred. Let's learn how to count. If we're gonna watch TV, you're gonna learn how to count. What was I saying? Yes, so my OCD, the biggest turn in that for me was when, I can't remember where I read it, but it was the idea that you will never get rid of the anxiety. The idea is not to wait until the anxiety goes away to perform an action, but to exist with the anxiety. Exactly. It's just there. Yes. It's just there. You're not going. This goes for writing too. I mean, I, I'm completely guilty of wringing my hands about waiting for the moment to be just right and the muse to visit so that I can, I, I can type up a masterpiece. But it turns out, no, you just. Sometimes you might not exactly feel like it, but you sit down and write, and I guarantee you'll be having fun within five minutes. But this culture, man, is just so. It has completely zombified us and made us think that anything that's even a little bit difficult or painful or un even uncomfortable should be avoided at all costs. Exactly. And it's been to yep. our entire detriment. Like, I've been on both sides of this, and I can tell you that it's not fun to be a person who lacks courage. It's, it's not fun. There's nothing interesting or fun about it. The anxiety or the, the fear in the pit of your gut that you might have because you took a risk or you said something that maybe you shouldn't have said or you, you know, made advances on somebody that you shouldn't have made advances on or 
got drunk and climbed up a <laughs> this is a true story got I got drunk with my friend in uh, Lawton and we climbed a, a crumbling industrial smokestack tower thing barefoot I don't know how we got out of there without catching tetanus or something but you know we were climbing rickety poles and pieces of the of this old factory were falling as we're climbing and we woke up the next day and said well that was you know but that's a little bit different right because you have some liquid courage but I can tell you that that is much more fun than sitting in your house and saying all the right things so that nobody's ever mad at you you risk nothing you gain nothing that is the way that a coma patient hangs on to life not a person it's it's pathetic it is pathetic and it's become codified and metabolized in our society it's a program of, of education and, and lifetime uh, debilitation, you know? And in, unless we really break out of that, uh, I, don't, I don't know. I mean, you asked inter- you know, that, that interesting question of what would the, the dampier style of, of life be in today's terms? I think another way to look at it is, uh, is, it, is it still possible at all and for how much longer will anything even approximating that, even approximating it, be possible if we continue on the path of avoidance of risk, minimizing pain, uh, reducing effort, general laziness, the disparagement of all physical exertion, short of a Peloton frame, you know? Uh, yeah, if you're at the gym or working, you know, that's, that's okay. Because there's a vanity sort of element to that, really. Um, but nothing about, oh, well, I'm going to ride my bike through, you know, uh, eight mile in Detroit, you know, on a winter's yeah, evening. Yeah, what I about really- that, you know? I went on a I went on a night bike ride with some friends through the streets of Juarez, Mexico. There you go. That was fun and spooky. There were dogs behind eight foot barbed wire chain link fences. And when you see a snapping <clears throat> dog in America, you get the impression that oh, if he gets out nine times out of ten, he's not going to do anything. But these dogs, you could tell they wanted nothing more than to just rip your throat out, right? And stopping to get a taco from a vendor on a dark street and having a guy ask me if I wanted to go into a dark alley to see a pair of boots he wanted to sell me. Man, that was fun. That was a good time. Scary, but fun. Well, that's where all the stories came from. And we wonder why our literature of today is so blasé, so spineless. Mm -hmm. Or we, we seep into the world of, of pure genre and slasher stories and all these things because we don't have any sense of just day-to-day adventure. When I hear the dogs barking, I can't, I'm, I'm, a, you know, I'm, I'm a dog spirit, but I, I identify with them. And I think of them, here, they're kind of mercenaries who don't have anything to do. So of course they get grumpy and, and their moods get a little bit tough. They're they're going, well listen, I, I wanna let's go do something, you know? Let's go do yeah. so let's go on a mission, let's go have some adventures and stuff, because I'm getting bored and angry behind my chain link fence. Because well what do you expect me to do? You know? 
I'm I, yeah, it's know, a dog. I'm I've got the pirate soldier uh, explorer uh, part of my deal because I am a dog, and you've kind of just left me, uh, you know, on on a on on base, you know, guarding something, and I just think, oh yeah, okay. Um, and they and, and they get meaner and meaner and meaner, and people get meaner and meaner and meaner. My sister and I went to the Hoover Dam over the weekend, and you know it's a federal installation, so there's the Department of, of the Interior behind it all, but Homeland Security, you know, and all you have to go through these uh, metal detectors, and it's, you know, these guys who like, there's they they're really just TSA agents. Uh, but mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. they like to think that they're, you know, federal, you know, authority figures and kind of operatives. And it's like, and they get weirder and weirder and weirder. And we have, you know, people who have training to do interesting things, but only sort of dark escapades for them to go on for, uh, for freelance purposes for, you know, really bad people. Um, mm-hmm. So what we need to, to get back to is uh, we had buccaneers and privateers. We've got to b- bring back the privateer class. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. the thinking, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. I th- yeah, I like that. I like, yeah, this is just, you know, become like these people in your mind. There's plenty to rebel against just because things have been explored and we have the internet and phones that we can talk to each other great distances it doesn't mean that the that there aren't rules anymore and there's not a way to go off the map right the map has just gotten much more detailed and the more detail a map has you know the i mean the exits are pretty clearly detailed too so why not just move off of that and into discovery enjoyment I don't know. I got this great, this might not connect, but it's on top of mind. I got this great journal. It's beautiful. It's called Analog C, is the S-E-A. And they make these journals from really great paper. And I don't know, it's a hardback journal. It looks great. And I found it randomly in a bookstore because... Rios and Gus and I were just sort of wandering around downtown Edmond, Oklahoma, and saw this really cool-looking little bookstore. And the shop, uh, the clerk at the store, was telling me about this company. And apparently, they're based out of Germany, and they have zero online presence, and they only communicate to people through postcards, right? Wow. So, so you have to find out about them, and you know, and send them a postcard, and then they'll send you a postcard back, and. That's where the, the analog of Analog C comes in. And they put out these great essay collections about the, the need to move back towards, towards analog. And I think that that's speaking again to this pirate, this kind of wistful pirate nostalgia or longing for some kind of form of adventure because just because we have all this technology also, it doesn't mean we have to use it, right? You can create your own adventures just by simply putting your phone down and thinking to yourself, you know what, I wonder, I wonder what the process is for making a matang, right? I wonder how that might work. I could go to YouTube and figure it out. No, no, I'm not going to use my computer. I'm going to go, Gus and I went to go get supplies so that I could start making my stick chart. 
at, at Home Depot. And I just shot, thought to myself, well, what would I need? So we looked at saws, and I got a nice hand saw. We looked at stain. I didn't know that there were so many different kinds of stain. I got sandpaper. I thought, huh, 220 grit. Yeah. Like, yeah. Oh. Like, you know what I mean? I do like, know what you mean. I do know what you, you mean. Know? And this is I cheated a little bit because I did. I did ask. Kel, shout out to Kelby. I did ask him about the sandpaper, but the the print. Like I was in Home Depot with Gus for an hour and a half, and we had a freaking blast, man. He was just looking at everything and going, "Whoa, whoa!" And it took me an hour and a half to leave the store with about uh, six items in total that I bought. So, <laughs> created my own adventure. Well, there are so many things about that, and I love the sandpaper idea, because once you get into that, you realize that that is, uh, you know, a paradigm for how everything works, because there are all these levels of detail and gradients, and if you just gave anything a, a, moments, a moment of curious attention, the whole world starts speaking to you. It resonates, and it, it's as if it was going, I was waiting for you to ask that question. You know, it's like the, the like librarians who are, are specialists in their fields. They're waiting for someone to come along and go, ah, do you know anything about this? And they go, yes, I do. And, I do. You know, and suddenly there's so, the whole world opens up. But there are two key things to this. One, it's a fabulous way of actively and positively channeling OCD characteristics which are in greater uh, commonality than they have ever been. More people have that kind of orientation. And the way to manage it is to let your curiosity run free. And I have a great uh, tip and tool uh, uh, model coming up. But the other thing that is just so important is that if you let a sense of detail enter in, you start to see the rich worlds that are completely undiscovered. And let's face it, anything that you haven't discovered is still undiscovered for you. You know, people forget that. They go, well, we've, we, everything's been, you know, we've been to the polls, we've been to the, yeah, well, you haven't, you know. Yeah, exactly. Who do you mean by we here? But, you know, the moment you think, well, yeah, the whole planet has been is you know monitored by satellite. Yeah, well, if you're in Bass Strait and you're in a running sea of fifty foot high waves, right into the and the wind is just coming at you, mm -hmm. you think, well, all that satellite technology, all these systems, all this administrative knowledge, all that stuff is kind of meaningless, you know? Meaningless, meaningless. Well, how's that satellite going to help you when it's midnight and you're in the bowels of a, the most haunted sanatorium in Southeast America? Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, where's your satellite now? Where, how's, your, how's your phone going to help you? I mean, you can put yourself into these positions and people might say, well, why on earth would I do that? <clears throat> because I think that you have to you have to gamble a little bit just a little bit adventuring is just a way of paying your debt to the universe by gambling just a little bit it doesn't have to be with your life but maybe a broken bone maybe a little mental scarring 
maybe malaria in your case. I mean, that's what you did, right? I mean, you were you were rolling the dice down there. Yeah, and there was and, you, uh, and every single thing that went wrong led to some important learning experience. If not ten great stories, at least one, and memories that that then really created possibilities for new survival, new new challenges. And you just reminded me of something that is, uh, I've, I brought this up in an earlier uh, episode, talking about uh, the millennial mindset. And you know me, I'm just always asking people questions about what they think about things. And I asked this group about, well, who are your heroes? Because you and I talk about, a, you know, a pantheon of heroes. I mean, we've got, I mean, Dampier today, we're folk, we're, you know, that's kind of what we do. We talk about the people who inspire us. And we've got tons of them in across a range of fields. And one gal said to me something that really hit home. And I thought it was interesting because I, would, I expected... Uh, a woman to, to answer differently, or a female to answer differently. She said, I don't have any heroes. And there was a, a two-beat pause. Because I'd be afraid I couldn't live up to them. And I just thought, well, you have said something very profound there, and it, it just chills my blood. And I, I may have to lie down. That's what makes me have to lie down is when I hear something like that. And I thought, mm -hmm. really? That's why you, yeah, you might fail. You might look like an insignificant turd up against someone like William Dampier or William Shakespeare or on and on and on. But that's, mm -hmm. if that's the argument, then your life is already over. What's the point? What is the point? Yeah. Well... You might look like all those things, but I'll tell you something. You won't look like that to all the people who are around you. Well, right. And what about your responsibility to be a little bit of an inspiration for others? They want to get out of that yep. too, a lot of people, you know? Right, right. Yeah, you want to do these cool things so that when you die, people have neat stories to tell at your wake and the after. You know, like... You want to, while you're alive, make people think, you know, I was going to go, I've always wanted to do this thing, but it's always just seemed kind of stupid in the grand scheme of things because, you know, the climate is changing and there are Nazis roaming the streets of America, pulling people from their homes and throwing them into camps. And it just, I don't know, it just doesn't seem important for me to go hike the Rockies, I don't know, wherever you want to go. But you go and you do it, and people say, hey, the climate is changing, the world is ending, there are Nazis patrolling the streets, and, and Chris still went and hiked those mountains. Huh, maybe I can do something too. It's good, it's a bug. It's, a, it's the good kind of mind virus. It's the fever, you know? It's, it leaves yeah. some room for, for the, the teaching uh, wisdom of, of fever and trauma. 
You know, just the idea that Trump, you know, post-traumatic stress disorder. You know, okay, no one's minimizing that. I'm not minimizing that. I've dealt with that on multiple levels. I understand that. But on the other hand, I'd like to know, well, what's the point of, of living? If it's not to face saw, that, you know? I saw... I have curated my social media feed so that I don't have to listen to people whine and complain about Elon Musk anymore. But I have, um, you know, some really great uh, video channels queued up on Instagram. So any at any given time when I call up that site, I see, uh, you know, muscular black dudes handling king cobras. I see muscular... Uh, Japanese dudes doing parkour. Some of these in, insane. You've seen parkour, yeah, right? Right. It's, the, it's wild. The, it's awesome. It's really cool. There's another guy who likes to do really dangerous cliff diving into bodies of water. So he'll try to jump between two rocks. If he miscalculates even a little bit, he's a grease stain on the side of that mountain. But he's gotten some really cool videos of him doing flips and tricks through these holes into lagoons. And I see skateboarders. Skateboarders are some of my favorite pirates. Yeah, they, uh, I get that. They're, they're not where they're supposed to be. They're uh, using their environment in ways it was not intended to be used. They're putting themselves sometimes at great physical risk to pull some of these tricks off. It's some of my favorite forms of athleticism. Anyway, my point is there are tons of people out there who are doing this kind of stuff. It's, it's not hard. You just go do it and you might die but I have bad news <clears throat> we're, we're all gonna die eventually so that's the no, nobody's getting out of this thing alive no and I, I think that it, it's the same about sort of graffiti artists you know it's not like all of these people are are cool and are doing this for the right reason there are skateboarders who are completely nuts and are drug heads and just you know dicks but there's a kind of spirit of rebellion against mediocrity and rebellion against fear that I think is admirable. And I think we need to encourage that. And if we wanted to blow open the education system in America, we would start to, to embrace some of these alternative uh, strategies of exploration and discovery, which are still very active. And, uh, but they have to be, you know, uh, encouraged or you know in a sense really vigorously discouraged maybe that's what we need we need some real uh, I would like to see uh, a possible idea where education is completely forbidden and is tabooed yeah. and, and we just authoritarian accelerationism yeah let's go we shutter all the schools we fire all the t we just blow the whole thing up as some people think they want because uh, they're they're just killing it by a million little wounds just bleeding it dry and making it just you know insipid but we actually close the whole thing up and so we make like going to the library or having you know some interest like Imagine like a home microscope or something. Like that's like the penalty of death, you know? Mm -hmm. Imagine what you would have going on. Suddenly people would go, well, damn, you know? I'm, I'm, I'm gonna, you know, really get into this because this really matters, you know? 
that's what we need some spirit of like resistance do you think that the uh, the governments of the world we'll just use the term the elites do you think that there was any intention behind what I'm about to say which is the kind of the opposite of what you're saying right which is that now that we live in a time where everything is available do you think one of them got hip and was like hey if we just make everything available number one nobody's gonna be able to tell what's true anyway and number two they're gonna just assume that they know everything so they'll stop looking <laughs> just just put put everything out release all the documents Oh, totally. I think that the, I think that there is is an absolute strategy there, and it falls definitely in the rubric of, of the camouflage sciences. Uh, I mean, humans really expanded the notion of camouflage to not just melding into an environment to avoid predation, but to create the the illusion of targets that aren't there to completely swamp mm -hmm. channels with yeah. so much noise. Yeah that people can no longer really be clear on what the notion of signal is. Uh, mm -hmm. And yeah, no, I think that the, the entire program of availability of education, however good intentioned and idealistic that was on certain fronts, and I think certain people had a, an immense amount of you know, real commitment to that and believed it was possible, but it's not possible. I mean, think of it in terms of a beautiful banquet. Well, you can serve that to a limited number of people. If you're going to blow that open and have and, and try to make that same banquet available to a thousand or ten thousand or a hundred thousand times more people, it ain't going to be the same banquet. You know, you're going to get mm -hmm. really weird things going on. You're going to get McDonald's. You're going to get eggs that aren't eggs anymore. You pour them in. You know, there's there's some sort of weird yellow liquid. What are those? You know, what is that? Oh man, what? you're going to get all I've of these chemicals. All of this. Like, what is that, man? Like, I see some of this stuff, and I, <clears throat> you'll see like you know imitation cheese, and I, I think to myself, I, cheese was pretty good. Uh, I liked I liked it when it was just cheese. You know, or a Beyond Burger. Did you know that Beyond and Impossible Burgers, their stocks are in the toilet because nobody nobody wants it. The the imitation burger patties. Yeah, those are. It's like I don't, you know, I don't want that. Nobody wants that. Well, look, anything that has patty itself is a disturbing concept. What does that mean? The patty made. You know, <laughs> you can't put your hands together and smush it, or take a spatula and smush something. You know, it's like everything labor-saving, everything, everything involved with the word convenience. Anything that can be associated with the word convenience is already tainted. Anything that is con that's connected with availability and access, uh, anything that is associated with. Uh, the leveled playing field. I mean, really, okay, well, that's, let's get our earth moving machines and dynamite out there and start leveling jungles then. Oh, no, we don't want to do that. We don't want to, we don't want to actually do that literally and destroy land. We want to level the playing field in social conceptual senses. It's like, oh, okay, so we're going to reverse engineer a metaphorical paradigm. And, wow. and we wonder why things are going to go wrong, you know. It's like, well, wow, leveling, leveling the topological collective conscious mind map, basically. I love that. That's, that's such a cool idea. That's what's happening, and we get all of the weird shit that's going on now. And 
you know, if, if we just had said no, it's got to be a little bit more improvisational, a little bit more uh, hit or miss, a, a few more pirates, heretics, and cannibals out there. And that's a lot more interesting than a lot of meth heads breaking into uh, cars to steal things, you know? That's not yeah, the kind of piracy yeah. we want, you know? No. Well, because, I mean, meth and, and being a drug addict is the same spiritually as sitting on your couch all day. It's just handing the reins over to something else, saying, you know what, you just... You could say the same thing for alcohol. Yeah. I mean... It's just like, you know what, I don't want to go through <clears throat> the trouble of figuring out what to do with my evening, so I'll go buy a six-pack and let that do the thinking for me. But, uh, which, I mean, you know, pirates love love a good beer every once in a while, but <laughs> it's, it's, it's uh, Dampier loved them a bit too much, a bit too much. I love their, there's a, a small... It's not even really an anecdote. It's just something that was mentioned. And one of Dampier's many stops on the Roebuck, they they stop at a port to re refuel, so to speak. And you so you're thinking, okay, what are they are they getting, you know, bread, cheese, what no, they were filling back up uh, with uh, brandy and wine. So they made an entire stop just to get more booze. <laughs> so there have been there have been beer runs forever forever yeah and that's i mean that that wasn't even the point of the story i just thought that was such a charming anecdote that you know that's part of the route it's like well we gotta hit up you know this port right here because the the booze is getting low and if i don't have a drink and i have to look at this guy's hairy ass for you know one more day (laughs) we're gonna mutiny we're gonna have a mutiny and uh toss start tossing each other to the sharks but uh, anyway, that was just a fun detail. Well, there are so many cool things about Dampier. I think that one of the you know the lead-ins for us uh, is is the not uh, completely coincidental uh, fact that he was a very good writer, and uh, he he brings you into this insofar as that's possible. I mean, how do you get the experience of of you know? Sumatra and the Cape of Good Hope in that time period in those ships or some weird ceremony in the Philippines how do you make that even possibly sensible to people like us today well you do that through through being a, a really good writer and they, there are many in addition to Dampier's own works um, there's a book by uh, Diana and Michael Preston, the, A Pirate of Exquisite Mind, which uh, I think is a beautiful title. And I mentioned this um, woman, Cindy uh, Valar, V-A-L-L-A-R. Uh, she's written quite a bit about this, and she has a, an article of Pirates and Privateers, The History of Maritime Piracy. And her piece about uh, Dampier is, a buccaneer more interested in nature than gold, um, mm-hmm. which is a really cool way to sort of uh, to think of him. Uh, but it's amazing to me that we have somehow lost sight, not only of all the, 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 the aspects of adventure and courage. That's not so surprising today, I think. Um, but 
we take entirely for granted uh, with an almost religious ignorance the discoveries of the past that have given us our moment-to-moment -moment possibilities of, of couch-surfing <coughs> mediocrity. And yeah. I think that is uh, beyond ungrateful and beyond ignorant. It, it really is some spiritual deficit that if we don't recover from it within the next decade, I don't think humanity as a, as a project ever will. Well said. I think that's the perfect note to end this particular discussion on. Um, and for next episode, we're going, do you know, you're usually the one with the good map here. Um, we brought up some really interesting avenues that we could pursue. What do you think? Well, there's something to, uh, that I'm leading up to in, in the tool and tip segment, which I think might be uh, a way forward. But I, I think it's, uh, I would generally uh, moot the idea of continuing on our theme of exploration, discovery, imaginary realms and the reasons the functionalist social reasons why the human mind would be looking at those kinds of uh, activities, that kind of engagement of the imagination, but to think of them uh, particularly from the history of uh, their direction at children and, and how that has changed. We, we touched earlier on uh, childhood as a kind of creation of the modern era. We certainly looked at that from the point of view of, of uh, marketing um, and to some extent major commercial entertainments. But uh, I think it's an angle that gets us into the whole world of how we're mismanaging uh, and mispresenting the notion of imagination, uh, which should be a lifelong resource to draw upon. and. We need to get back to appreciating that, and I think it's time for all of us to take on board the responsibility as as citizens of the universe. You know, we have a you know a citizen responsibility in social civic terms, but I'm talking about a cosmic cosmic citizens or denizens, if that that might be better. I'd rather be a denizen than a citizen, maybe, uh, to be actively engaged in the universal practice of imagination and looking around at that. Because that's, I think, what our heroes are doing. I think that's what links the great scientific minds with the great artistic minds. It's what underlies courage from the point of view often of what people, you know, who have had courage, when they describe their psychic states, it's oftentimes more in terms of curiosity rather than, you know, I'm not scared of anything or I'm a kind of belligerent, you know, dickhead out to take mm -hmm. on the world. No, that's not how they talk about it, you know. Um, mm -hmm. So that, I think, is, is, is one way to go. But I think we, we have hit on something really important with piracy, that that may be the core paradigm of uh, a kind of engagement with the world that will always... Uh, generate respect and also 
be something that's hard for us individually to live up to. Perfect. I'm with it. That sounds awesome. Um, so I, I have this imaginative challenge. Uh, it, it became more challenging than I thought it was going to be because uh, unexpectedly Gus awoke early from his nap, which happens sometimes. I mentioned earlier that yesterday, um, which is not our, our very long day together, we spent about eight hours together, but he slept for three of those hours, which was nice, gave me some time to write and work on things. Today is the 10-hour day, uh, the day that I would hope that he would nap for three hours, and we got about an hour in. But that's not excusing anything, I just think that it's kind of funny. I think that kids kind of uh, can psychically tell when we want them to do something. So they, even if it's something like taking a nap, they can find a way to, to not do it. But I went with Chris's idea or prompt to have four sort of panels and I think it tells an interesting story, although it might not be evident exactly how all these images connect, but I'd be happy to, to talk about them. So the first we have the pirate utopia, <clears throat> the gangster utopia, being completely swept away by the most... <laughs> yes, sir. <laughs> Perfect. Yes. Perfect. <laughs> yes. God, he's good. Yes, sir. <laughs> he's, he's good. He's got good timing. Uh, being completely swept away by the most enormous F5 tornado uh, you've ever seen, right? It just completely wipes the gangster utopia off the map. So the second panel is kind of a fast and furious uh, street race going on. And the focus is on this really cool souped-up car with a tomahawk painted on the side of it. Like that. The third panel, the third panel is, uh, you know, we're going back in time, back in time, back in time. The driver of that car uh, being handed a tomahawk by his father, who's in charge of running the prostitution end of the gangster's paradise. Oh, gangster's paradise. There we go. Perfect. The Coolio song. Yeah. We can use that. We can use that. So he's being handed that. And at this point, there, you know, we would see kind of in the background that the gangster utopia is this kind of thriving cyberpunk style city. Uh, moving back to the to the very, very first panel, where everything is legal. It's a kind of Amsterdam. There are segments broken off into, you know, drugs, gambling, women and some of the darker, you know, political assassinations, hitmen for hire, that sort of thing. But they all live in this one area. But the way that they are able to exist, such as they do, much like the Yakuza in the Kabukicho region of Shinjuku in Tokyo, is that they've made a deal with the government uh, that while they can serve the rest of the citizens not included in the gangster utopia and they have a kind of sovereignty to where they are they've been put in charge of controlling the weather and as long as they keep the weather controlled they can do whatever they want uh, okay i love the focus on weather which i think with the tornado thing is perfectly appropriate i think that's great 
so basically, if if we were to, to play that in advance, you know, you have this kind of setup, and I I also really liked the metaphor of the weather because I think that uh, in a lot of ways these utopian communities do kind of get eventually they fall apart due to a kind of psychic weather or a lack of properly controlling the winds to call back to Dampier, a lack of understanding of how the winds work. But the way that I see it is the classic story of the second generation of this pirate utopia becoming interested in ways of being a pirate utopia within a pirate utopia, right? Of focusing on something like illegal street racing, which in this context is the only thing you're not allowed to do in the pirate utopia. Um, the tomahawks, of course, being that great Kiowa ritual of being able to control where tornadoes go by using a tomahawk and throwing it into the ground. And so they're so busy trying to become a pirate utopia within a pirate utopia that they're not focused on the trajectory of this enormous tornado <laughs> that ends up just kind of swooping everybody up. So that's there's a lot of uh, metaphor and stuff like that in there, but uh, I liked the imagery. I do too. I do too. And you've triggered an interest, like two streams of thought for uh, for next episode because I do think that what I was saying about sort of uh, continuing on our imaginary realm and how these target children and what the 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 the, the, so, the social uh, purpose and intent of those have been at their various different times is something that, that I, I do want us to get back to, but I've got two possible uh, alternatives. One is, because you've been in this sort of cyberpunk sort of mode, and I think a lot mm -hmm. of listeners are, are pretty attuned to that, pretty fluent with the literature of that. Some of the key people, Rudy Rucker we've mentioned, uh, William Gibson, on and on, you know, Chana Miebel, you know, uh, and both of us to some, you know, and we have a kind of romance about that period. We're also concerned about where the energy uh, of that dissipated to um, in the aughts and into the dire time of 2012-2013. Where where do the, the the good times go? Um, so there is that. But I have another thought that kind of builds on that. I have a, a, a premise came to mind that. It, it would be the basis of like a YA type of novel or series, television possible series. And I'm wondering if you and I would take the piratical risk of in real time actually brainstorming that out in a writer's room way on mic for next week. And I don't give you any more, I, I don't give you any more heads up than what I've just said now. Uh, yeah, yeah. I just lay a, a very basic uh, plot premise world sort of scenario. And then we start alternatingly creating this uh, world peace scenario vector uh, on mic for next show. And yeah. listeners, of course, can contribute. You know, I mean, maybe we can, you know, let's start building some really weird stuff. How about that? I like this idea. I like this idea as a, as a segment. I think people, well, I know I would get a kick out of it, <clears throat> but I can't think of any podcasts that do this, that uh, sort of give you a, a look into the mind of how 
we think about these things and how we come up with them. I have clients <clears throat> who will hire me to help them with their with their plots if they're stuck. By the way, if anybody listening, uh, just you know, email me or DM me on Twitter because it is a service that I offer. But um, I've always been wondering if there was a, a real way to sort of monetize that because it's a type of skill that is sort of unique, you know? Some people have it, some people don't so much. Everybody can do it, but, you know. I, I think you're perfectly placed for that, Dan, because you continually perform a laterality and fluency of mind across a whole range of things. But you've had an experience looking at not only the creative side in your own work, but really being uh, an editor across a range of things and a publisher mm -hmm. and have seen, you know, the whole process. So yeah, yeah. I, I think that, yeah. uh, and I know a lot That's of people cool in the, in that game, and to some extent, uh, you know, I've done bits of that too. So I think that you you definitely have uh, the credentials, the expertise, and also the the crucial element of your uh, you get a natural joy and buzz out of digging into those those problems. I do. I do. It's it's been a thing I've done since when I was eleven or twelve years old. Dad would leave the computer open. Dad was a big Heinlein fan, and had a mind to write sort of military sci-fi of of that that genre. And he would leave it open, <clears throat> and when he was at work, I would go into his stories and start to quote unquote fix them, in as much as a twelve-year-old can fix a story, but. I've just always gotten a kick out of doing that. Well, this idea of mine for, for our next show is absolutely, it, it is a tomahawk thrown down that line. It really is. Mm -hmm. And there's there'll be lots of fun avenues for exploration of that. I think that's... That's a really I'm I'm I don't know I wasn't thinking of that this is this is why I enjoy doing this so much I always get new ideas um, but you've you've got me thinking about this and I think this is the perfect perfect exercise I think it'll be really wild yeah I agree that sounds awesome do you have a tip I do here's my tool uh, you know there is an expression in fencing and I had uh, I think everyone loves you know, you think of pirates and swashbuckling and, you know, sword fighting is really great. Sword fighting is so much more interesting than knife fighting or uh, any yeah. kind of gun play, you know, uh, really. Mm -hmm. It's it's much more athletic. It's much, uh, it's, it's much more aesthetically pleasing, you know. Uh, but there's an expression within fencing uh, of a bold attack. And they don't mean that in a general sort of sense of a kind of strat of a kind of aggressive... A bold attack has some real parameters to it. There's, there, that means something specific within that world. And that got me thinking about the possibility of a bold speculation as a kind of intellectual approach to things. And my tool then is, what if we allowed ourselves and challenged ourselves? And I think it's important to think of challenge in in also giving ourselves permission, not just you know getting off the couch. It's, it's, it's two sides. To, on a weekly basis, to have a moment of bold speculation. 
And this doesn't mean grand speculation. Bold here does not mean grand or, you know, taking is there a God or some nonsense like that. It just means we entertain an idea with some depth and we, we think about the possible implications. So here's my example. I ask myself this question. I think we're talking about giving ourselves questions. I asked, can culture possibly be defined as the bodies of, body of ways in which humans have collectively decided to modify or ignore the behaviors of other animals? And then, as a corollary, and this is the thing about bold speculation and the bold attack in fencing, it always leads to something else. And this is where people get stuck. They get stuck as writers. What happens next? You know, you've got to be thinking in ways that give yourself some momentum in all aspects of life. But the corollary then, I got to, well, does our idea of nature actually include other animals at all first. Isn't it really first landscape plus weather? You know? And I, th I think there's something interesting in that. But just the idea of a bold speculation, you know, when we're sitting on the toilet, when we're sitting in traffic, when we're, we're too tired to be reading or creating, what if we just turned our mind over to a question that we then let our mind, you know, that river otter mind, you know, the river otter inside us wants to do things, you know? That's what the, what the, the Gus age wants. You know, there's always, there's still energy for something like that. So just giving ourselves over to the possibility of bold speculation. And that ties in with my tip. And you'll see that this ties in so with eerie precision with what we've been talking about. And it, it, it ties in with an anecdote you shared in this episode without any uh, forewarning from me, no discussion whatsoever. This just, just popped out. I started thinking about the notion of jungle gyms and when was the last time I'd seen one and I thought about the beauty of them as physical structures they're kind of abstract cities skeletal cities they tie into our utopian dystopian aesthetics frame they're great training grounds obviously for coordination hand-eye confidence physicality amongst children and we know that's what's missing and it would be cool if we had physical and conceptual mental jungle gyms. So I let my mind wander. I let the river otter inside just have a bit of a play. Just a moment. And this is the tip. Because when you listen to that instinct and just let, let your fingers do the googling, let just, just have a moment of, well, why did I think of that? I don't know. Well, where does it go? Well, I looked up the history of jungle gyms, and I did not know this. Uh, the first jungle gym was formally invented and patented by a patent attorney named Sebastian Hinton 
in Chicago in 1920. And it uh, was at the Crow Island School in Winnetka, Illinois, and there's a remnant of it that still exists. And if you look that up, you will have an immediate psychic resonance with the structure that you were talking about earlier in this episode, this sort of ominous industrial, you know, crazed thing that, that really is a physical challenge. And there is an interesting body of literature of how children's playgrounds have changed over time to a point where now they're all about risk aversion and not falling and hurting yourself. And all of this is terribly relevant to your uh, parenting experience. But for all of us today, you know, we're, we're worried about, you know, liability and anxiety and stress in younger people rather than channeling energy um, in a positive way. Well, Sebastian Hinton came to his uh, invention through his father, Charles Hinton, who was a mathematician who constructed a physical dimensional structure out of bamboo as a means of teaching Cartesian coordinates. He, he would get kids up and then he would give them coordinates and they'd have to leap to that. So that he made geometry and algebraic geometry physical, you know? So it was something you could explore with your hands and your muscles, not just your head at a desk. And Sebastian Hinton realized that that was a good idea, but kids really needed to do their own exploring and, and to have fun and the confidence building of muscularity and physicality with a, a less structured framework. So he came up with the, the jungle gym idea and it ties into an entire uh, stream of thought about uh, progressivism in education. It, it, it links in with people like Rudolf Steiner, who you've mentioned. There is just an endless stream of things that came, for me, this research came out of just the random idea of thinking, Oh, jungle gyms. I remember those, you know, and it goes further that the uh, uh, softening agents under it, the, the ground cover uh, are wood chips often. Uh, but in California, and I, my experience was to, to call them tan bark. Well, I tied into a link about that. And if there's a whole series of exchanges across a range of websites about the term tan bark being used in California schools of a certain time. So there's an immediate folkloric, linguistic, anthropology, sociology connection with all of this. And it gets even odder because Sebastian Hinton lived just long enough to register his uh, patent. Or patent for this and and some of this is is fascinating reading because in in his uh, his uh, patent application he claims this will appeal to the monkey instinct in children and there's some wonderful wonderful writing in it but he himself was a, a terrible uh, victim of paralyzing depression and 
uh, ended up institutionalized very young. He died in his 30s. Uh, and someone else I know is in his 30s. Crucial time. Crucial time, particularly for men. We often think it's crucial time for women. Crucial time for men. And he ended up committing suicide by hanging himself. Now think of the irony of, of that. I mean, you couldn't construct that as a scenario for a, a novel or a screenplay with any more uh, suspicious precision than that, could you? It's a beautiful, beautiful story. So I got this whole configuration of new knowledge about so many of the things that I'm interested in that you and I are interested in purely out of a random little squizzle of a thought that flashed through my head. So my tip is if we are struggling for self-knowledge and want to understand more of the cosmic mind, the giant river otter within us, we've got to let that have a bit of a play and listen to it. Let those intuitions out for a moment. Let them lead us because we don't know. I mean, I would have never predicted that. I wouldn't have necessarily predicted that, the, that a jungle gym had one uh, identifiable inventor associated with it, you know? And I certainly wouldn't have thought that he had this weird background of a father who's a mathematician inventing a child tool educational play device to help teach math and then the son revises that and develops that within a framework of progressive education in, in Illinois, in Chicago, which is a hub of that. I didn't know that either. And then I would never have thought, well, that he was also battling demons of depression and, and paranoia and that would eventually hang himself. You know, what a beautiful opposition to the monkey instinct, you know, that he was trying to help nourish, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it, it I do think it shows that that, you know, it counter to this notion of the whole a planet has been satellite monitored and everything is known and there's no more chance to discover. That is absolute nonsense. There's tons of things for us to discover as individuals. Uh, and who is that we that knows everything culturally? We've got to get away from that. Um, but there are infinite number of possibilities in, in discovery if we let our intuitions have some playtime and lead us because we don't have a model for how those work. Somehow I must, you know, people would say, well, somehow you, you maybe knew these things and you're just kind of remembering them or following it up. And, you know, maybe, I don't think so. I think that we have, I don't, to go back to an earlier line, we said, you know, we, we have the expression artificial intelligence. We don't have the expression artificial intuition, you know? And there's a clue there. And, and we're all about following clues. And uh, at some point, when, you know, we've, we've, I think we've been right to focus on piracy. But 
in, in future episodes, we will be also looking at the responsibility to be detectives, you know, on the search. Yeah. It's endless. We got some, oh, there's so many cool things coming up. It's just, I think this is a great adventure to be on, you know? I really, I, I'm enjoying it so much, and I hope listeners are too. And my dream sort of ties in with that a little bit. Um, it, uh, well, the first part of the dream, I was uh, on this wonderful, it was, it was just, it was, it was silly. It was ridiculous. I was on this wonderful romantic getaway kind of back sort of in that kind of post-college era it's a little bit like some things that really happened to me uh, i won this grant to supposedly write uh, a book of poems and my girlfriend and i decided to run off to new orleans and the swamps uh, and listen to cajun music and have adventures instead i eventually did write something but that wasn't how we spent the money um but I was with this uh, female who was suspiciously part of my subconscious, just like that your ideal, 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 you know? It was like somebody really looked into my brain and thought, well, what's going to really jangle him? And, and she was that. And we were in this uh, ruined kudzu, Spanish moss-covered uh old roadside motel in the uh well the like the uh the big uh atchafalaya basin you know in louisiana somewhere there you know egrets flying around and you know uh armadillos crushed in the road and that kind of thing but there was this giant uh deranged hatchet murderer with the nickname Crawdad Munro on the loose. And so we're trying to get really into it in this ruined motel. And all of these people are going through going, well, Crawdad's on the loose. Crawdad's on the loose. And I thought, well, and we just said, well, that's all the more reason to, to really get it on. And, and we did. And I think that, you know, there's always some kind of giant deranged hatchet murderer, you know, wandering around the swamps, isn't there? You know, otherwise they wouldn't be the swamps. Uh, but if you do find yourself in a ruined motel in the swamps, don't let that interrupt your, uh, your playtime. That was my takeout when I woke up. Okay. 